0: every time i'm like oh i'm not sure i should share that should i reveal that it always pays off i always meet somebody new i always get some new opportunity just because transparency is magnetic and it builds trust in a way that we need as human animals
1: Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. Every week, I'm talking to thought leaders around the world who are tackling some of the world's most vexing problems, or who are adding to the level of insight in the world that we need now. And all these people, even though they are solving problems, think the world and our future is still super bright. Well, We need to know what they know. We need to know what they know about getting around obstacles and finding opportunity and setbacks. And we need to live with that same burning sense of excitement about all that's possible. So welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich. I'm the founder of The Goodness Exchange, a place on the internet now that is celebrating all the insight and innovation going on that we are not hearing nearly enough about and helping people find their role in that wave. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world right now, and no one knows about it yet. But we're changing that, and every guest I talk to on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast is a part of that wave. Today we're gonna to talk to David Weaver, a creative thinker, habit hacker, recontour. So we're gonna understand what that name means. And you know, when I look at David's work, the first thing I that strikes me is that he is the kind of person who can help us break out of our routines and by doing so provoke new perspectives that are gonna be more useful to meet the times and just live with an open mind that just is like kicking the door down on possibility for us all. So welcome, David. To the conspiracy of goodness podcast
0: thank you dr linda it's great to be here
1: well you know i'll be uh transparent right off david and i had a conversation about a month ago and we so we have some great notes we're going to follow but this is going to be a really um, off the cuff conversation and you'll probably see why in just a few minutes because uh, (laughs) david is the epitome of a creative thinker and when you've got somebody as curious as me and somebody as creative as him We're going to go places, uh, take people on a little journey (laughs) that we can't even predict right now. So, David, let's just start with a few things that just to kind of set the stage for people. Can can you give people a little bit about your story and, and why you're here and and how it how it's relevant to helping people in our times?
0: Yeah. Well, I think you know, it's, I was kind of taken by you know your description in your intro, talking about you know kind of setbacks and and maybe viewing things as opportunities. And I you know I love that because I think there are so many as I, as I go back through my life, I realize there are so many things that can be sort of articulated that way. You know, I, I was born in the middle of the country. Uh, I was born, or was born and raised in Iowa and with a blue collar family and, you know, good sort of strong heartland values and the rest of it. And there sort of came a point where I decided, well, I, I really, I really kind of want to move away from here. But it was, it was sparked by the fact that I went to university. I think I felt what I would call from a Midwestern point of view brave enough which meant I left my hometown but I didn't go very far. I went I went to where I could still bring my laundry home and that kind of thing. And my intention going away to Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska was to be a lawyer. And the minute I got there one of the first things I did was I asked the the alumni group, you know, could you give me a couple graduates? Could I go interview a couple graduates? I'd really like to, you know, know what my life will look like down the road. And in hindsight, It was probably obvious because I I realized that I think as a kid, I wanted to be a lawyer because I loved what happened on people's faces when I said that. They got real happy. You know, they, they wanted me to be a lawyer. I thought, well, that feels pretty good. So let's go do that. But then I went and interviewed these lawyers and I realized I don't want their life. I don't want what they're doing. And so I would say, you know, you know, in hindsight, I don't think it was, but at the time it sure felt like a setback and I was scrambling. I was two weeks at university. You know, I thought at that time I had to, you know, know what I was supposed to do. and I had no, no clue whatsoever. So I had written a couple ads when I was working in a grocery store in high school and I really enjoyed it. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go into marketing and advertising and then I'll figure out what I'm going to do later. But that gives me at least a major to assign. And For the next 30 plus years, I spent my life in marketing and advertising. I absolutely loved it. And it really, you know, it it was amazing to me how much... You know, as a kid, I I loved, you know, watching TV. And so it was thrilling for me actually to be on the other side of that screen, to be putting things on that screen rather than absorbing them in. But that journey, as much as I loved it, and I was very successful in it, it was a journey that kept me moving around. So I, especially at that time, it was very common in the advertising world. If you wanted to move up, you had to move place. And so I did. I spent pretty much five years in every place. I went from uh, Omaha to Seattle to San Francisco to Los Angeles, back to Seattle for another five years, then to Dallas, then to New York, then to Kansas City. And about six years ago, my wife and I were sitting in our favorite fried chicken restaurant in Kansas City, Missouri. And we just decided, you know, we need to, it's time to make a move again. Where do you want to move? And I remember telling my wife, I said, you know, I've always thought about going to Vermont. In one of my very, very first jobs, I, for a strange set of circumstances, I went to Vermont on a business trip. And the minute I got here, I was like, oh, I, I fell in love with the place, as a lot of people do. But I always told myself, I'm going to end up there. I'm going I'm to go there someday. So when my wife and I decided, OK, it's time for me to leave kind of the advertising business per se and to move, and we knew we wanted to come back to the Northeast because her parents are in New Jersey we thought well let's give vermont a try and we were i always tell this story we were about 80% of the, we were about 80% sure that we were going to move to vermont but we weren't 100% sure so we did what has become a theme in my life we did a little bit of an experiment so what i did was i we were cons- we were choosing between vermont cape cod and portland maine and so what we did was we rented an Airbnb for 30 days at a time in each one of those locations as a way to try them out. I called it my sampling program. But by the time we left Vermont going to Portland next, we knew we were, we were coming back here. So, you know, it's 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 such an interesting journey, you know, coming working in the cities that I was in, being you know, kind of working my way up the advertising business you know, eventually ended up being a CEO in New York. And now sort of choosing this quieter lifestyle that's really more akin to the one I grew up in, but it it continues to be who I am. I'm a person who loves big cities and I love small rural places. So uh, I have found my home in Vermont to be perfect for me because I I live in a town of 3000 people here between Burlington and Stowe, Vermont. And yet when the borders open, I have Montreal just, Two hours to my north, and I can I can get the best of both parts of my brain.
1: Well, I'll just reiterate what you just said. Maybe some people listening know I'm a Vermonter too. This is what, quite by accident, um, David and I discovered in our first meeting. We were introduced by somebody who's not a Vermonter, and. <laughs> And I live just about an hour from Montreal and right on the border. And I tell you, that is uh, something very beautiful in your story and in how we can experience life living on, on the border of any country. Then you've got all these opportunities to taste other cultures. And that's what I really love about your moving all around. You know, some people listening to this podcast will have had that experience and be nodding their heads about how it feels to drop into culture after culture and then assimilate and then then know when it's time to flutter away to the next place. And I think that speaks to something that you mentioned earlier that I'd love to start this conversation out on, which is this notion of collective imagination. Because, you know, we're not all that different. And even though you talk to me about collective imagination let's kick this conversation off right there
0: yeah well you know I, it's funny i work so i i have a, a coaching service that i call outsiderism and what i really think about is that outside point of view and how helpful it's been in my life and in my career working in advertising, I, I suppose, especially looking at it now in hindsight, the good and the bad of working in that business was that every day you could, and maybe you should be inventing. And so you didn't, you got used to not, you know, if you saw how things were, you're like, okay, that's how they are, but how could they be? You know, what could we do? You know, how, how exciting could this be? And so I work with, you know, one of the things I I do with my clients, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, I, you know, I, I I put it in the category of creativity because That tends to be the word that people use. But the word I'm finding myself more gravitating to these days is imagination. And the reason for that is because my experience has been that, especially my corporate clients, I don't feel like they're lacking in creativity in the way we think of it from a business standpoint. But what they maybe are lacking in some ways is that imagination and that ability to sort of look at things and say, okay, so I I always call it the givens. This is a given. Okay, now if, if you treat something thing as a given, for example, in the category you're in, now you get to ask yourself the question, well, why is it a given? And is it really a given or is that people treat it this way? One of the agencies, I love this as a really simple example. One of the agencies I worked in, they had a really good example of this that I always love to quote, which is they were working on a cat food brand. And the question really became, why is it a given that cats in cat food commercials eat out of crystal goblets? What is going on? Is that a given? Or has we just accepted that that's kind of this this, this way that we think of cats. And, and I think that's, I, I do, I think that's really helpful to sort of ask yourself, well, you know, does it have to be that way? So a lot of what I'm working with my clients in is, is again, tools and techniques to really grow that imagination. And I, I truly mean grow it. So just as a quick example, what I will tell you is I have driven my work, my coaching work I kind of created what I, what I called an enemy, which is what, you know, what, what am I trying to fight against? And there are really two things that I'm fighting against. One is fear, which shows up in so many ways that I'm not going to go into detail on it. But the other thing that I'm fighting is I realized that when my corporate clients wanted to apply creativity and they wanted to get creative, what did they do? Well, they got a conference room at a local hotel and they synced up everybody's schedules, and they got themselves some markers and some big pads to write on, and they reserved maybe half a day, maybe a full day. And I started to realize, I'm like, well, this is actually the problem is that, at least in my experience, creativity is not a toggle. It's not an on-off. It's something that you need to develop like a muscle. So I created my practice really learning more from personal trainers and thinking about how they apply to fitness. And applying that to personal training, or excuse me, to creative thinking. So what I do with my clients is, I mean, for the most part, I work with them in 10-week engagements. And my hope is to work with them such that they don't necessarily need a next 10-week engagement with me, that they have developed a habit that they have made creative thinking part of their day-to-day routine. And that's really my goal. So I literally kind of adhere to the personal training philosophy. I, you know, we set up a system whereby they devote 20 minutes every other day to do this work, to build that muscle and develop, to to develop that skill. So, and I, I, you know, I think that's it. I think when I talk about the collective imagination, you know, that's what I mean. I think that, You know, a lot of people have been told they're not imaginative or they're not creative. And two things happen. Number one is people put them in a box, which is the not imaginative or not creative box. And worse yet, they put themselves in that box and they begin to live their lives in a way that's not creative and imaginative. So, you know, that's that's kind of how I look at it. I I have a very sort of set goal and that my goal is to help raise the creative imagination of as many people as possible with my time left on Earth.
1: Well, and this is this is the essence of the creative, of the collective imagination is helping others, right? Helping yeah. others see their limiting beliefs, right? Yes. Yeah. and this is at the, that that very concept is at the heart of this this trend towards diversity. Is that yes. the more diverse people's our experiences are in the mix, the more we just sh- we can shuck off each other's limiting beliefs and tell each tell a, a different story completely about what's possible.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. I I think that you know there th- and there's so much truth in that that. You know that's part of it. We actually one of my techniques that I work with a lot of my clients on is is we actually use diversity quite literally in that way, in that we create characters and think about well, how would this character be dealing with what you're dealing with? How would this character be dealing with? And so it's really intellectual diversity as much as it is you know the way we typically think about race, racial or other diversity. You know, one of the things I I always notice I work with a lot of CEOs and and I'm I have one difference from a lot of CEOs in that I'm an introvert. And it's always helpful for me to have them think about, well, what if you were an introvert? How would you look at this problem in a different way? And, and again, that's kind of a, a different take on diversity, but I do think it's the key thing. So much of, of the work that I do in helping build that imagine, imagination for my clients is simply to get them to see the world through another lens other than their own, which is a skill I think we all could get better at every day.
1: Well, and that is the essence of changing contempt to curiosity. That's one yes. of my little favorite sayings that I, I remind myself of constantly. I, I really think that the minute I feel contempt start to bubble up, I always get a better outcome when I can shove that aside and get curious with this person that's right in front of me. I'm feeling so much contempt. I'm telling you, it's changed my life to be able to to nurture that skill. But that's another point too, right? None of this comes natural. It's, no, like you said, it's a muscle.
0: I would even, frankly, go a step further. So I have a I have kind of a core belief that that can be controversial. But but here's what it is: my core belief is that what you talked about, that contempt is actually the result of that we as humans have predictive minds. And we have predictive minds because we needed them, right? We wouldn't have survived. If we, if we didn't know that that tiger might have been scary or dangerous, we wouldn't have made it this far, right? So we, you know, our minds were evolved to predict, to anticipate what might happen. And yet that ability, I think, sometimes is exactly what gets in our way. Right, so let me give you a really weird example of this one that just came up the other day. So I'm going to get the details wrong, but you're going to get the story will make sense. So there I, I feel bad. I, I, I've, I've got to look this up. There was a there was there was a country singer who just did a concert and it was like he he had been shut down for like a year and a half. I do remember it wasn't Toby Keith, because that's the only one I know off the top of my head. And it wasn't Toby Keith. So some country singer anyway. So he's doing his first big show after the pandemic. He has not done a show for a year and a half. He comes out on stage and the footage that exists that sort of went around social media is this interaction that he has with one of his fans. And this it's packed. There's like 10,000 people in this auditorium and he's yelling at this fan of his. Right. And the reason he and this fan had gotten into it is because after a year and a half of not singing these songs, he forgot some of the words. He forgot some of the words to his own songs and some of and some of his audience was getting really upset. So the, the thing that exploded on social media was this interaction between this, this country star and fans. But the way I'm looking at this is slightly different. I'm like, hmm, let's put ourselves, let's not, let's get out of our predictive mind and think about what each of these two individuals is going through. Right. On one hand, we have a country singer who. I think it's OK if they forgot a few lyrics after a year and a half. I mean, I, I, I work in the world of muscle memory. That's OK. We all forget things. And especially after a year and a half of not doing something that probably was wrote before that. That makes a lot of sense. I can have empathy for that person. On the other hand, I can also have empathy for someone who has been waiting a year and a half to see his favorite singer. And this person gave what he considered an unrehearsed and unprepared performance. Both of these things can be true. And so what's our obstacle? I believe our obstacle is two things. Number one is the simple you know, empathy and trust of, of being able to see something from someone else's point of view. That's one piece. And then of course, the other piece is even, so now forget these two people and look at us as the audience, looking at the social media piece. We are judging it through an eight second clip that we don't know any of the rest of the context. So if you think about the three characters in this story, the singer, the fan, and us viewing it, all of us are reacting with contempt based on our limited understanding of what's going on in the reality of the other person's world so yeah you're exactly right and i think that's that take my point is the reason i had to go through sort of the evolutionary door to get there and and i work with my clients on this all the time i say the point of telling you the evolutionary story is, believe me, not to get into a debate about evolution. That is not what I want to do. But the reason I have to talk about that is because I have to have you understand that you have to retrain your mind. That is a powerful thing that you, you have been learning since you were an infant. And in fact, your parents and their parents taught, taught you that you needed to predict the world and what was actually happened. That's a very different skill from listening and empathizing with the world, which is, I think, the precipice of where we are today. Mm.
1: so this is huge i want to just even elevate some of the points that you made this predictive mind thing is super big i mean and it would be so easy for all of us to slip into events in in our minds that just happened where where somebody else did that to us yeah (laughs) yeah but we would we would forget to have the self-awareness for the times that we do it ourselves so I'm going to really think about this. That predictive mind thing is so, um, is so important in contempt. Another thing I, you, I want people to know that when they see me looking down, I'm taking very <laughs> careful notes I, because I don't want to forget something. I have a podcast episode I share with everyone that I can possibly share it with. N- not on my own podcast, a different podcast that fundamentally changed my thinking about social media and outrage and everything that you're just saying, the, partic- the predictive minds. It's, I'm going to recommend people, it'll be in the show notes. It's called The podcast itself is called Hidden Brain. It's a neuroscientist, and I don't say that to scare anybody off. It's, he's just an ordinary guy who tells us how our brains are wired, every single one of us. And he explains social things that are happening in society by how we are wired. And there's a great episode called How Outrage is Hijacking Our Future. Hmm. I would recommend that to anyone who's listening to this podcast, because you'll be able to take social media a little bit differently and it won't crush your worldview because you're going to go, aha, I know what's going on there now. Yeah. And this contempt without, so then you reminded me of another thing i really love you to comment on. So if we're in the world of social media here, I always like to say that social media is <laughs> comparison without context.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean we don't know. You don't know what this cabin that I'm sitting in, my mom's cabin looks like outside this. <laughs> it's dirty laundry right there just yeah, outside. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It might look really nice at the flower. <laughs> but that's what social media is. It's comparison. But I think now you've opened up my eyes. What if contempt is like that? It's contempt is contempt without context is probably one of our most dangerous problems too, don't you think?
0: Oh absolutely. Well I think, you know, it's it's funny. So I one of the things that I I gave a, a a speech at a TED event about four years ago, and it it was about I, I was concerned that we were losing our shared story as a society that, and just a quick note, just to explain it, you know, my concern was we had moved from an era where it was three networks and we were all watching the same stories and we were all commenting around the water cooler on them to not only a period of time where we were all watching different things, but because of streaming, we were all watching them at different times. You know, you might've been on season one of Game of Thrones and I was on season six. So even, even if we were, you know, kind of interacting with the same stories, our ability to, to kind of communicate shared values was being lost. And so I was I was thinking about, you know, that as it related to and one of the things that I actually you know, I always say that, like I suppose most human beings, I don't like being wrong, but sometimes I really hate being right. And one of the things that I was right about in this speech was I'm like, I'm worried that our fabric of what holds us together is being ripped apart a little bit because we're not sharing the same stories or even commenting on the same stories. You know, we're sort of looking at things differently. And, you know, the it's funny, the I have to say the example that you brought up, about the room you're sitting in is something I've been giving a lot of thought to during the pandemic, because I, like a lot of people, have been talking to a lot of people via screens. And just like you said, I mean, at its worst, right? Social media is kind of the portrayal of, sometimes an aspirational self a a self that maybe it doesn't tell you the whole truth and certainly within you know zoom meetings and facetimes that's true too i mean i'm i'm standing before you today i'm in my garage uh, or my basement and i'm actually my 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 elliptical machine is right back here i I work out (laughs) back behind this but this is you know this is the, the social media dynamic and But what's interesting is there are these moments, these and back to back to your theme about kind of like setbacks and opportunities and sort of things to think about. You know, a couple of things have happened to me during the pandemic. I'll, I'll bring one of them up is, you know, there's a lot of, for example, like there's been this intellectual discourse around like inequality and a lot of it's I always kind of believe this. so. You know, I call myself a raconteur, which is a fancy French word for storyteller. And <laughs> and yeah. The reason I use it is because yeah. we as Americans hear storytelling and it doesn't necessarily have a good aspiration. So by adding French here, but I do think we live in these stories and we, I do believe stories are more powerful than facts as it moves our hearts. Right. And so I think too often we get into the zone, especially in the social media fabric where we're trying to argue these facts. And I'm like, yeah, but the thing about this, the facts, you know, you could tell me that X thing happens in the world, but that doesn't matter. What I care about is what's happening to me right now in this moment. So when I bring up inequality, for example, we can talk all we want about, you know, CEOs making X amount more than their frontline employees or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is, it's an important conversation. We should be having it. But what I'm going to tell you is during this pandemic, I think, we the storytelling version of that sort of represented itself in another way. So I have been on, you know, lots of kind of all company meetings, or I just completed actually an online course where we were all on Zoom. And the thing about it is, is if you want to understand and feel inequality, I would tell people not to look at the paychecks. Look at people's living rooms that they're holding Zoom calls in, because you can actually see, you know, in some cases, the CEO who has repurposed a a child who's gone to college, their bedroom and it's really nicely painted, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, the frontline entry level employee is sitting on a laptop in her, you know, on the floor of her living room while keeping her child at bay. And you can see and understand and have empathy for that inequality in a very very different way. And so, I think to your point, you know, that's one of the things that I actually wrote a thing again, this is in, in the spirit of being being upset that I was right about something. So 10 years ago, I wrote this piece that I called social media isn't very social. And I kind of stand by it, which is that as we're all trying to portray these sort of best selves, we're we're not maybe being as transparent about what we're feeling. And, you know, this is something that we all deal with. And so, you know, it's my hope that the good again, the good news is hopefully as we get past this and, you know, I I think we're going to keep having a lot of Zoom meetings even after all this is over, for example. My hope is that we all not only open our hearts, but we, you know, kind of open our screens to our realities and kind of represent our true selves a little more.
1: I absolutely agree. Because, you know, there's a sense of humor there. I have to to share. I'm just going to be so totally transparent since you picked up your cloth. So you you may have noticed (laughs) me just inching my screen over a few minutes. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I'm staying. My mom passed away a few months ago. And I'm staying in her cabin on the family farm. And and my parents were Dean Martin. I love it. I saw that too. (laughs) A full bar there. That That is chock full yeah and, and so i do these meetings all day long and, and all these podcast interviews me being interviewed or me interviewing others and i have to always make sure that the jack daniels model <laughs> <and everything. laughs> because yeah. it's context right we're yeah. scanning the screen for context about dr linda or david because yep. that's what our brains do we're trying to decide is this person trustworthy are they right
0: Yeah. And and that's that predictive mind again, right? So we're telling our our mind and I'll tell you where this, this is, I'm going to kind of reveal something that isn't ready for prime time. I'm literally kind of thinking this through right now. I have found lately, I've been, I've been recognizing this very, very clear pattern. And that is that every time we're, I mean, this isn't, this isn't mine. Some would argue this is the Buddha's, but it's about every time we're suffering, it's because we're trying to control something we shouldn't be trying to control. Because or that we can't control. Right. And so just like you just said. Right. So we're scanning a background trying to like, you know, oh, let me let me try to figure out what's going on in Dr. Linda's life. You can't figure out what's going on in their lives. You, you what you're you're seeing a few, you know, a few props. Right. Yeah. We all have a few props. But I think that's it. I think, you know, you really. And again, that's kind of why I'm using the word rock on tour, because I, I do believe it's in those deep stories that we reveal ourselves. Ever, I will say forget my work. In my personal life, every time that I had that moment of hesitation, I'm, in fact, I'm preparing for one right now for a speech I'm giving here in 20 days. Every time I'm like, oh, I'm not sure I should share that. Should I reveal that? It always pays off. I always meet somebody new. I always get some new opportunity just because transparency is magnetic and it builds trust in a way that we need as human animals.
1: I'm gonna let that just sink in. I just wrote down the timestamp for that. This okay. is a very key point that, you know, so we can take somebody being transparent as a vulnerability. And certainly we think of it as when we do it, when we, when we consider being transparent, we think of it as a vulnerability. I was calculating while you were going on, I was saying, should I just own this screen with the big bar in the back? <laughs> and so I risk, you know, and so we risk. And this is what I love about one of the things that I think has come out of the pandemic that's an opportunity, is that I think more people are willing to go first, David, and be vulnerable first. Have you noticed that?
0: Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there is a, you know what, and, and I'll improv you. I'll give you a yes and to that because I think it's uh, very powerful. I, I think you make a great point. So I'm always reminded of, especially early in my career, especially early in my career when I was... You know, I was fresh out of school and again, I had come from what I considered, you know, a blue collar, humble background, very working class. And I remember, you know, especially back then, I mean, this is kind of ancient times now, but I would walk into these, you know, oak laden conference rooms with typically a 50 plus year old white man who was sitting at the head of the table, who would be making the ultimate decision, et cetera, et cetera. And just now, as I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the physicality of that, right. And, and kind of where we were placed. Versus now, to your point, we're all these little squares. And yeah, technically there might be someone in charge, but we all at least kind of have a platform and we all have an unmute button. So maybe we all need to use it more. I think you're right.
1: Yeah, you know, I've been interviewing all kinds of people of different kinds of status. And almost to the person, no matter what their topic is, and that they want to share with the world, they, they almost always will mention, and if we let it go long enough, I bet you would have mentioned it because you're, um, you're right there right now. Hey, the pandemic was the great leveling. It No one person, no matter how rich or powerful, knew what was going to happen tomorrow or knew how to proceed all of us level playing field everyone was everything was up for grabs no one knew how to proceed
0: yeah and and i would say so i uh, usually i limit myself to saying these in very small forms but i'm now going to reveal this on a podcast so i guess that rule is going out the window too in hindsight now with 18 plus months of the ability to sort of think about what the last 18 months have been the pandemic has been really really good for me in that I've gotten my act together, you know, I'll I'll bring up, a, will bring up a couple of examples. So I gotten much healthier. I lost 45 pounds during this pandemic. I have recommitted to, to exercise. You know, we're, I have to say we're lucky in Vermont. Social distancing isn't a problem in Vermont. We can walk on the trails all day long. So I, I don't kid myself about my privilege. So we have the ability to do that. But I think the biggest thing I'll say for me personally, the biggest thing is this, you know, I traveled minimum once every two weeks in what I call the before times. And I've always traveled. I'm sitting on more frequent flyer. I'm embarrassed how many frequent flyer miles I'm sitting on right now. I will never travel like that again. When I think about the amount of quality time my wife and I have been able to spend over the last 18 months of our lives together, And the fact that I love her more now than I loved her 18 months ago, which I recognize is not the same for everybody. I get that that's not always a good thing. But I just think about, you know, in an interesting way, what a gift, that ability to focus. And again, you know, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that we as Americans are very lucky in that way and that we had more. Not all of us had all the opportunities, but more of us had more opportunities to grow during this time. And hopefully we took advantage of it. But I guess my point is this. I marvel now when I look back through my story, it's actually why I struggle. The question I struggle with most is the first one you asked, which is like, tell me your story. And I'm like, oh my God, my story, my story has changed so many times recently. And part of it is because there are these pieces of my story that look a certain way from blue collar to white collar, from a person who rejected his college major to a person who became a CEO, a person who gave TED talks, like all these pieces of my story. What I will tell you in the spirit of transparency is almost all of those kind of facts that people use to say, oh, you were successful because of these things, those things all made me miserable. The worst job I ever had was when I was a CEO. I was less happy in that job than I was in any other job. And so my point is this. I think it's funny. The word mask, of course, is a little, a little weird now, but we all have been wearing masks We just haven't really recognized it. What, you know, in this sort of outward portrayal, I was talking fairly recently to a friend of mine, who's an entrepreneur. I was talking to her, well, this would have been right right around the pandemic luck. And she told me something. I'll never forget this. She told me this and I, I loved it because it was a personal story that revealed her heart, revealed a truth. And also I recognized what the parallel that we all feel in that was. I asked her, I'm like, well, how's it going? And she, she said to me, she's like, well, I'll tell you the truth. It's, it's, it's pretty miserable. I said, okay, tell me about that. I go, we we talked a little bit about some of the struggles she was having, but she said, but you know what the worst thing is? She goes, I'm a business owner. And she goes, when people ask me how it's going, I have to tell them it's going great. That the the biggest pain she felt was actually the inauthenticity in being able to tell people the truth. It was more painful than some of the business and other suffering she was having. So I think, again, I'm just hopeful that as all of us began walking around in public and interacting and being arm in arm and eye to eye again, That we maybe, even if we bring, you know, 10 to 15% more of our real selves out there, I, I think it'll be a great thing.
1: I totally agree this is uh, it's the future i we, we've got to rescue talk about stories we've got to rescue the story of each other the story of humanity in the wider world the the news and the the social media has so thoroughly trashed what we think of each other and the the outside world that that that's what I do that's what we do at the goodness exchange we are changing the negative dialogue about our times by casting a light on on so much goodness and progress so let's take a break and I'll I'll share a little bit about that with folks so they know it is still truly an amazing world. And then we'll finish off this conversation by proving that over and over again. So let's take a break. Hello, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles and the podcast you're listening to now, the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. And I have a question and an answer for you. Have you been hoping the world is actually a lot better than what you see on the news and social media? Well, it is. In fact, it's radically better. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows about yet. But on December 1st, 2021, all that changes with the launch of the Goodness Exchange, a digital landscape where you will see that the world is full of goodness and progress, and we will introduce you to the people making it that way. Bottom line, someone is solving every vexing problem in the world, large and small, and the Goodness Exchange is where people are coming together to amplify a future that includes all that. No one with good intention and good ideas need feel alone again. Here's what you'll find at the Goodness Exchange. There will be articles about the most amazing things going on in the world that are going uncelebrated. There'll be interviews and events that will send your mind and heart soaring again, and a social media platform dedicated to a culture of kindness, insight, and celebration, a way of um, amplifying a brighter future for us all. And that social media platform is a place where organizations doing good in the world will not have to hold their nose anymore. It can be a trustworthy, respectful place for organizations to host their groups and gatherings and connect with each other. A network of positive networks, if you will. The goodness exchange will be a place to find mini courses and masterclasses for personal and professional development, and eventually, there'll be a jobs board, and we have a children's website already all teed up. The thread running through it all is that goodness um, and progress is everywhere, and we will help people cultivate what they are uniquely built to contribute to this future for us all. Now, imagine a website with no ads, no games and no agenda. Just a simple and powerful vision of combining our collective strengths to create a future we can all celebrate. The Goodness Exchange will open a new era for us all as individuals because you're going to find stuff that make your life better instantaneously. And as a collective, because we all want a better future for our children. Who knows what's possible if there was a place on the internet that brought out our best impulses and our collective genius? Join us after December 1st at the Goodness Exchange and start living with less fear, more joy as an individual and as a collective future for humanity. Thanks. Now we're back to the interview. Okay, we're back. So David Weaver, you know, we, we can't dance around the edges of how we make our working lives match the kind of joy de vivre and and possibility that's there right in front of us. Uh, very much, I mean, you've spoken to it. You've found a place to live where you can walk in gorgeous places and and you've got your exercise beh- bike behind you so you can so we're building, I think most of us out of the pandemic are trying to build these personal lives that are richer and more thoughtful and more intentional, but then we're stuck with our working lives. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. one of the things that you and I talked about in a previous conversation was this, <laughs> the notion that we do need to change the narrative about our working lives. I, I loved what you told me about how the business, lang- business language is the language of war. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny, you know, it's, there's so much in terms of that, but I, I think that's at my most positive around social media, that, that is kind of where I see potentially the potential could go. You know, I I had the, the, as I left the advertising business and as I moved up here to Vermont and sort of, you know, could kind of take stock of my life for the first time in a while and really truly reflect, you know, one of the things I did was I actually went back and I looked at my old advertising briefs that I used to write in the ad world. Right. Uh, And it was just, it was, it was, it was frankly just kind of humiliating. It was, it was such a hard thing to, to notice was that first of all, as you said, you know, the language was all around war. We're going to do a campaign. This is our target. We're going to do a big blast here. We're going to bomb the media over here. I mean, it was just, I was like, wow, like this. And I realized like it, it didn't I I mean, I think part of it is it came from a different world, right? It was very broadcast. It was all that language was built up in broadcast medium where you could like go you know, no no, pun intended, great guns at people. Whereas now, you know, the idea really is more about how do we get people to participate? How do we get them to sort of move on and on and on? But I think the other thing, and I, it's something I, to be honest with you, I wrestle with even now on a day-to-day basis is so much of the language around marketing and advertising is inherently, I guess, although maybe we should question that, it's exclusionary. Right. I'm trying to target 34 to 45 year old men in this situation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you realize in hindsight, boy, that's a rather limited way of looking at the world. And I think especially now demographically with what's going on in the US, it's also, I, I would argue it's pretty obsolete. So I think that's the other thing is, and 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 you know that that gets excited. That's where I guess part of my frustration with social media and where it's gone comes into play because the optimist in me says, well, if demographically all these things have changed and there's a lot more digital work than than broadcast work, you know, really our goal should be how do we sort of wrap these communities together and get them talking and get them thinking together and creating real movements, you know, versus kind of where I think we are with our existing social media properties, which are just frankly divisive. And so, and I I think, and again, I think, I got to say, I think that's back to that, that mindset. We were, you know, immediately, I believe this is an ev- evolutionary trick. I believe that we were, you know, we kind of came out of the Savannah with the belief of, I got to know whether you're friend or foe right now. Like, that's the first thing I got to know before, you know, I do anything. I was recently in a conversation with somebody where we were talking about handshakes and the fact that handshakes for what we can determine evolved because you were trying to show somebody you didn't have a knife in injury.
1: So we're talking um, way back when, 40,000 years yeah, ago. Yeah. So even like all these things
0: around, you know, this culture and this language and this way we interact was built on this kind of world of threat and a world of, of scarcity versus abundance. So, yeah, I think, you know, that's part of it is that and and look, I will be the first to admit to you, I over correct myself every day that those old habits die hard. I still will talk about a target or we'll you know, do all those sorts of things. But I think that's, that's part of it is that simply bringing your own awareness to it is really the first step in trying to change this. The change does start with you. And if we can start to sort of, question this. And I'll give you one more because it's my most recent one. It's one from this morning, which is I've decided I'm not using the word woke anymore. And the reason I'm not using the word woke anymore has nothing to do with the political argument we're in right now. It has to do with the fact that I believe in growth mindset versus fixed mindset. So we are never woke. We wake, we wake every day and I will be more awake 10 years from now than I am today. I will never be woke I will wake a little more every day. And that's my new goal.
1: Another moment we've got to sit on here. This is really huge. I think one of the things that I like to think a lot about is how we can create a culture where it's okay to say, I was so wrong. I don't even know what I was thinking. I mean, that should be coming out of our mouths Almost every day, if you're a link learning <laughs> thinking being, if you have any critical thinking abilities at all, we should all be saying to ourselves a few times a day, God, I don't know what I was thinking. I had it so wrong. But we don't protect people's dignity so that we yeah. give the space talk to me about because I, I see that if the language of business used to be the language of war where i see it going is in something that i'm calling the gratitude economy i see a gratitude economy opening and there the language is going to be all about how do we handle this how do we get more collaborative talk to me about this
0: yeah i think so there's a couple things there so i'm all, i'm always reminded. My daughter, my daughter has graduated from college and is now teaching. But I remember when she was very, very young, we were living in Seattle at the time. And I don't, I mean, I think I may, she may have been five. I don't remember how young she was now, but I remember her asking me what DVDs did I watch when I was a kid? And I I didn't know how to explain to a child of that age that there was a time that you actually, not only did we not have that, but we had to be in front of the TV at the required time that the three networks told us it was on, and that was the way that worked, right? And again, what's the theme there, right? It's scarcity versus abundance. She has grown up in a world where if you want to watch a movie, you order it, it's there momentarily versus, you know, kind of waiting and and arguing with your family about who gets the remote control over that week, right? And so I think to your point about gratitude, and I think a lot of that, I I believe that's kind of the platform. You have to realize that there's kind of playing for everybody. And that, and that everybody has their own story, that there may be something going on that you don't recognize. There may be something that person is experiencing that you're just not seeing. So I'll tell you a really quick story that I just told somebody yesterday about this. I, it, it For me, this is, this was such a, a learning. This was in my, my first job, my very, very first job all these years ago, we had a client who in the advertising world who would always make us present the creative meaning read it to him or kind of present it theatrically he would never approve anything over the phone or any of that kind of thing and if you would ask me up uh, for most of the story, you know, what I thought of this per- what this per- what I thought about this person, I would tell you, I think he's a real piece of work. I think this guy wants us to put on airs and drive over there and I don't like this person, right? This person especially again, given my background, I felt like this is a person who was raised with a silver spoon in his mouth. He didn't want to hear it, right? And we would just would always have to go present it. You'd always have to go present it until one day. And this person was a VP of marketing, he had come up through the sales channel, right? So we were doing a, this dates, this story, we were doing a direct mail piece. And so we said, well, we have a direct mail piece to show you And we're like, we're going to send it over. He's like, no, 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 come present it. And we're like, it's a direct mail piece. You want to experience it the way a consumer experiences it. You need, you know, you, you should read it in a, like, as a letter. No, 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 come present it to us. So we're like, you know, we all, a bunch of young kids rolled our eyes and drove over there and mad about it and angry at this guy. So we went over and we presented it to him and we read it to him. And he's like, that's really, really good. I really like that. Who's going to sign this letter? And we said, well, it really needs to be you. It's a sales thing. He's like, oh, no, no, no. The president should sign it. We're like, no, this is a sales thing. You should sign it. Well, maybe the individual salespeople should sign it. Maybe that would be a better idea. And we're like, no, because then we got to do different lists for different salespeople. Just it's got to be you. Like, I don't understand what the hiccup is here. All we need is your signature on a piece of paper and we can put it into the piece and we're done. And this went on for a couple of weeks. And finally, we received the art of his signature. And the minute I saw his signature, the clouds parted. He couldn't read. The reason we had to present all the work was because he couldn't read. The reason he had uh, had gone up through the channels to become VP of marketing is he was a salesperson with pre-printed contracts. He literally never learned to read. Well, of course, once I knew that, even though I never, of course, addressed it with him personally, I saw a part of him. I saw a part of his story that gave me empathy, gave me understanding, things that looked rude, you know, a couple weeks prior now look like things that I could actually have some care about. So I think, you know, for me, that's it. If we want to move from a world of scarcity to a world of abundance, it's got to start with recognizing that we probably don't know everything about everyone else's stories. and And just like that country singer and the fan. We don't necessarily know all of what their expectations and stories are. You know, we're not the person who saved for six months for this front row seat to a country concert and now is disappointed. I just think we need to again, we need to just see each other and see what we're going through. And again, that's a lot of the work I do with my clients is just helping them see, you know, one of my clients actually is a a neuroscience company. And, you know, we have to see things through the lens of people who are, you know, high-minded scientists doing research in labs. That's a very different group of people than car buyers for Nissan. You have to see people for the stories that they're living because those stories are true to them.
1: This is a powerful concept that would get us away from a lot of friction that we're living with. Yeah. If we could... So I have to promote something of my own, not because it... it, Because... um, i 'm self serving but because I think it would be so helpful for our times, I was asked to do a TEDx talk for a TEDx Kanki in India, and i they wanted something about pausing. so I wrote a, a really great talk about the power of the pause, and what if what would a world look like where before we follow our emotion over a cliff, we just paused and we got curious, like we see somebody acting completely outrageous right in front of us. And instead of, you know, going with that crazy energy, we just paused and we said something that can validate some way validate what's going on and got curious, you know, wow, that is such a foreign perspective to me. Share with me how you got here. Yeah. How would outcomes change if we yeah. just said that to people? We could own that it's foreign to us because we're probably not that good actors. So our face is going to say whatever they're doing is seems crazy to us, right? <laughs> we own it. Wow. Yeah. That's such yeah. a foreign perspective to me. Tell me your story. That back to your thing about story. Tell me your story of how you got here to this point of view, and I would I, I would consider it, I would it would be honored. And you know what? <laughs> the times I have had the presence of mind to do that, it changes everything
0: everything you know, there's a, there's, I, I have to, there's an old story of the advertising business. And as I always say, when you tell an old story for the advertising business, you also, you have to start with, it's probably not true, but it's still a good story. And it's, it's a story about, there's a gentleman named Leo Burnett who ran an agency in Chicago called Leo Burnett. It's one of the most, it's the biggest agency that ever existed in Chicago. They invented Tony the tiger and almost every other animated character you can think of. It. So this is very old sort of madman days. And there was this story that Leo Burnett would give his account account people, when they went to talk to clients, he would give them, uh, when they came to the agency, they'd get a piece of paper and it would fit in their wallet because let's admit it, they were mostly men in those days. And so he would give his account guys these these cards that they were supposed to carry in their wallets at all times. And the instruction was, when you have a client who's acting un, you know in, in a bad way and they're driving you crazy, Before you launch into this, you know, whatever tirade you want to launch into with them, you were instructed to pull your wallet out, pull the card out, and just simply read the card. And the card read, maybe they're right. That's all it said. Maybe they're right. Maybe you're wrong, and maybe they're right. And I think to your point, that moment of pause, because again, and think about how that plays into what we were talking about a minute ago. That's part of what I've been thinking about lately, too, is We want to control it. And that's part of that jumping in and not giving it that pause is we want to control the flow of the water or the conversation or the argument rather than saying, okay, where is it kind of wanting to go? And, you know, maybe I could actually learn something here.
1: Yeah, we're kind of coming to the end of our time period here. I've got, (laughs) we did just exactly what we thought we would do. We went off (laughs) a different direction. I've got some really important things I want to ask you about. Sure. So I think we're going to have to have a part two, David.
0: Happy to. Love talking to you.
1: I'm too afraid we just would would just hit the mountaintops on some really great topics that you and I had planned to talk about. But we've had a lovely conversation here. So I want you to, so rather than go down any route, holes that we might not cover in a wonderful, funny way, like like we had planned. How about we stay with a few things? I'm just going to be transparent on this. So when I started, when I first talked to David today, I said, David, I know we talked about what we wanted to talk about, uh, but that was good six weeks ago. And are there any new things you're thinking these days that you want to get out? So the first thing was this collective, you mentioned that you're really thinking a lot about collective imagination these days. And we, we did get to talk about that so far, but there were two other things you mentioned and with our little bit of time remaining, I think what we'll do is we'll just hit, hit those two because they are, they are a little bit briefer, but they're super fun. And I want to end sure. this podcast, but one thing you told me about, which I am going to go out and look for in my life. And that's why I want to mention it here. Cause I just don't think there's enough fun in the world. And I got to think that this thing is happening all over. You told me about the 20 slides in 20, Second events? What? Tell me about
0: this. Yeah, so there, there's an event coming up here in Vermont, actually New Year's Eve night, that it's, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, it's called uh, something like Pikachu, and the idea is it's uh, 20 slides in five minutes, and so it's these, these the slides automatically go for 20 seconds, you have no control over them, so you, you write your slides, but then you had better sort of hit your marks, and it's going to go as it goes behind you. And so, yeah, I actually threw something out there I kind of alluded to earlier and I just found out today, actually, it was accepted as a, as a speech. So now I've got a speech to write, which I'm excited about because it's kind of a fun one. So actually what I'm going, the name of the speech is about that Ted speech dot, dot, dot. And what it is, is I'm actually going to take the last TEDx speech I did, which was back in 2016 uh, at an event in Kansas where I was making a point about what happens when we're not all. On the same page and telling the same story and i'm very proud of the content i'm very proud of the points i made some of them actually turned out to be rather prescient but what i'm not proud about is the way i told the story because i in hindsight i had waking to do and i have grown in the you know four and a half years since that presentation, so I'm going to give a bit of a rebuttal to my own TEDx speech as as this presentation. So uh, you know, uh, next time we talk, I'll have to let you know how it went. I'm as I told you, yeah, I'm I'm on. I'm 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 always excited to do something I've never done before, which clearly I've never done this before, and I'm also terrified about the fact that I've basically got 20 days to write these slides where I'm you know kind of putting my neck down for what I feel sorry about.
1: Well I you know I love the whole concept and if people want to get out a little bit or I'm sure these kind of events are you're able to uh, attend to them Virtually, I mean, yep. this sounds like a whole lot of fun. 20 slides in five minutes. There's so much room for craziness there. Yep. <laughs> and, and people yep. make fun of themselves. And many of the things you and I have talked about, like vulnerability, like empathy. Whoa. You know, yep. as this is going to be... It, my face kind of hurts from thinking about it. Um, <laughs> it, it. The smile on my face. So um, for people who, who are tuning in just to the audio. And then the other thing I wanted to just comment about, we, we talked about how... It's time to bring back a sense of humor. You no, know, yeah. it has been sad in so many ways, but we got to get our sense of humor back. And you talked about a, a great book, and share that with us before we wrap up.
0: Yeah, well, and and I will say this is this is actually it's kind of an evolution of a of a thought I've been having during the pandemic. One of the things I've been interested in is is what's been happening in media and why some of these really kind of interesting pieces of media have shown up during the pandemic and why people have sort of been searching them out. And I think it's because we need the unscripted is that everything, you know, everything is, you know, we're in Zoom calls, we're prepping, we're fake backgrounds, all the rest of this. And so we need that. And I, I recently, I've been, playing around with some humor writing stuff. And I recently picked up this book for those of you watching on video. It's called How to Write Funny by a guy named Scott Dickers. He's, he's uh, one of the founders of the Onion human mag- Humor Magazine. And in, and in the chapter titled How to Get Laughs, which is kind of a funny title in and of itself, there's this great paragraph that I'll sum up in this one sentence because I love what he wrote, which is, there's only one thing absolutely required for humor to exist, and that is surprise. And I've been thinking a lot about, I actually think this is the number one element that most of us are kind of really hungering for right now. You know, as things like travel have been shut down and the unexpected, you know, whatever that happens at the grocery store or whatever is that we're all missing surprise. And actually I want to, one quick other thing besides that, but I do want to sort of mention, if you want to learn about this, there is a great YouTube channel. It's called Twins The New trend. And it is two African-American gentlemen, I believe they're, I want to say the late teens, and they live, I believe, in Gary, Indiana. And their entire website, their entire YouTube channel is them listening to songs that all of us know, but because of their age, they don't. And so they're reacting, hearing these songs that you know so well And you're able to experience the surprise on their faces and the surprising reactions. If you do nothing else to think about surprise, go watch Twins the New Trend. And the song to watch is In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. It will be the best, I think, six or seven minutes you'll spend today.
1: And this is a great way to close the podcast and let people know that we will talk again. And we have so much more. I got kind of goosebumps when I said that we have so much more to talk about in the way of activating our best selves. I mean, we're going to talk about the outsider's point of view next time. We're going to talk about experimentation. We didn't get to purpose or any of these wonderful topics, So for now, and everything that David has mentioned and and I've mentioned is gonna be in, the links will be in the show notes. So don't don't worry. Okay, so tell us where we can access more of you, David, because we need more of you in the world. Sure, well, so
0: the best way to reach me please, by all means, send me an email. Send it to david at outsiderism.com. That's outsiderism, one word, no dashes. And I call it that because being an outsider is not a noun, it is a verb. It is a way of looking at the world and connect with me you also there is a website at outsiderism.com i will warn you it's it's in development because i'm kind of pivoting some of the things i'm doing and not revealing some other things i'm doing but send me an email because i always learn from people who connect with me and i as i always say i'm addicted to learning so let's all learn more
1: that's just great okay i'm sure plenty people will take take you up on that we're going to have definitely more of david's wonderful perspective on all kinds of stuff very very soon so keep your eye on this podcast For now, dive into the website over at the Goodness Exchange if you want to know that the world, that you were right to hold out hope for humanity. Because that's what's going on there. I'm shining a light. My only reason for being in the world, I'm pretty sure, is so I can shine a light on thought leaders all over this planet who are doing the most amazing things, bringing insights to the top that we need them right now, like David, others like uh, Damian Mander, who's discovered that single mothers make the best game wardens in Africa, and Topher White. Talk about stories. There at the Goodness Exchange, you will hear story after story of people who are changing the future for us all. All, and we're simply not hearing enough about what they're doing to shape our future. So I hope the connections of goodness and progress will, that we've shared with you today here will carry you through your week and you we will start finding all that joy and wonder that we've been talking about. Thanks.